Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Phil Kramer. And the last time we had uh, Phil on the line, he was about to go down to Mexico. And uh, so today we're going to be talking, doing a little recap on how his Mexico experience this, this year went for Coos Deer. And then he has also just uh, recently went out to Florida and uh, got, got his Osceola turkey. And um, so we've got a lot to talk about. Phil, how you doing? I'm doing good, Jay. Thank you. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. My wife and I just uh, got done with our morning hike and um, that's uh, been good. It's been amazing to see with this, you know, warm temperatures we've been having abnormally warm. Um, you know, everything is in bloom and, and uh, you know, it's supposed to be 90, you know, mid 90s today, whereas normally in March, you know, it, it might be, you know, 80 um, so it seems like the last couple of weeks, it's just been unbelievably warm, almost feels like, you know, early May. Um, but I guess next week it's supposed to kind of cool back down into the seventies. So that, um, for me, that'll be welcome because it seems like we go straight from, uh, you know, a little bit of winter that we have here straight into summer and spring is very short. So I'll take those 75, you know, 80 degree days and get as many of them as we can. For sure. Yeah, it's definitely been warm, unseasonably warm. It's got the snakes out and moving, and yeah. like you say, everything's out in full bloom. So I'm looking forward to that little cool down next week and actually feel like some springtime weather. And, of course, along with that comes the turkey hunting, which I know we both love. So, Boy, it's um, as warm as it is. It's around here anyway. It's I mean, I, I can't help but think those birds are probably thinking, what the heck's going on? And, and um it might be an early season. Uh, first question of the day, Phil, uh, the credit cards were getting hit uh, yesterday, uh, Friday the 17th of March, um, across the board. Any hits for you or any 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 any, any positive news? I tell you, I went into it with very little hope because my father and I and my daughter all had elk tags last year, um, although I was kind of looking forward to maybe an antelope tag. Mm-hmm. But when I got up yesterday morning, got to work, wasn't even thinking about it, and then I uh, had a buddy of mine call me and say, hey, have you checked your account? It reminded me. I hurry up and checked it, and <laughs> I could not believe it when I saw a charge for an elk tag for from Arizona Game and Fish. So no way. One of us is getting back-to-back elk tags this year, so, so and we're who, pretty excited. And who, who could it be? It's Tell me who. Uh, it's who, either going to be my father or myself. Oh, that's awesome. So did you guys do archery or what did you do? We did. We did early archery and those were the the only choices. So regardless of who it is, um, it's going to be a good tag. That's awesome. Looking Um, forward to it. So you did it. You have a single charge. So you know that one of you, you put in individually. So you know that one of you has a, has a tag. Yes, that's correct. Um, prior to this year, we had always put in together and, um, you know, kind of put in our time until both of us could draw the tag. And after both of us drew this last year, we decided to split them up and kind of up our odds a little bit on one of us might be lucky and drawn and it seemed to have paid off. So. Well, good. Now, you know, one of the good things is, uh, knowing that you have a tag, but one of the worst things is having to wait, 
to see, you know, what you drew and who drew, uh, it could be a long two weeks. It very well could. It very well could. And, and I'm hoping my father drew, and, and he's hoping I drew, and uh, I guess it really doesn't matter. We're both out shooting our bows and <laughs> already excited for it. So That's fantastic. Um, but you're right. It'd be a lot nicer to know exactly who and, and what unit, but um, we have a pretty good idea on where we'll be hunting. It's just a matter of finding out who's actually going to be doing the shooting. Oh, that's great. Fantastic. Well, the last time we talked, uh, we did a pretty in-depth uh, podcast on uh, kind of your ideas and perceptions of hunting in Mexico for coos deer. And um, we talked a lot about, um, you know, patterns, rutting patterns, movement patterns. Uh, you know, you were talking about running a lot of trail cameras and, and kind of hunting more of a desert ranch. Um, and I got a lot of good feedback from that podcast. Uh, I, I, I noticed here on your Instagram and for those listeners, um, Kramer, that's with a C Kramer hunts, um, on Instagram. Looks like you shot a buck with a right main beams, got a dropper coming down, actually two droppers, but one looks like it's about three or four inches or so on his right main beam. Um, was that your target buck that you went into the season after? It was Jay. And I, I, you know, I consider myself very fortunate to have been able to take that buck. Um, it wasn't something easy. Uh, we had had that buck on camera. This was the fourth year. So we knew he was getting up there in age. Um, it was very interesting to see him grow a drop tine, and then the next year he wouldn't have the drop tine, but we could still tell it was him to a very unique eye guard. Um, and then in November, we got pictures of this buck again. He was hitting two different tanks uh, about a mile and a half apart, both of them fairly regular. So I went into the season, you know, with very high hopes of harvesting him early and getting the job done. And um, we ended up with quite a bit of weather down there and it changed their patterns considerably. Um, but I, I stayed with it and I think on the seventh day, yeah, it was the evening of the seventh day at five thirty. he, he showed up to the tank that I was sitting and, um, <laughs> I, I was able to calm my nerves down enough to, you know, make a pretty good shot. But that being said, I, I chose to use my rifle. Uh, he was definitely within bow range, um, but after putting in the time and everything, I I uh, picked up the the gun and went ahead and took him with that. And you're right; he had has two drop tines on the right main beam. Um, just a great big, old, mature deer that we had a lot of history with, and it's one that I had. I basically said I'm shooting that deer, or, or I'm not shooting one this year. And, Fortunately, the stars aligned, and uh, good Lord willing, everything fell into place, and I was, I was tickled pink with it, and I'm still kind of on cloud nine over that deer. You know, I'm looking at your Instagram, and that deer, there's a picture with you, and then there's a picture with it uh, on a trail camera, and is that a rope that he's got around his eye guard, or is that a stick, or what is that on? There's looks like a night photo. Um it says, uh, even with his camouflage, I was able to find him. What does he have going on there? <laughs> uh, he's got a bunch of cactus wrapped around his antlers there. Okay. Um, he he was he must have gone through a pretty ruddy 
um, phase there around the middle of December and up until the middle of January. Um, he was coming into both tanks uh, pretty regularly, um, sometimes every day, with, and he'd do that for three, four days, and then he'd skip a day or two. But, but I have multiple pictures of him that he'd come in and he'd just have a big ball of cactus on his head or a tree branch or he uh, he definitely was was beating up quite a bit of the vegetation in the area uh, there for a pretty good amount of time, and he carried it around for a while. Yeah, I'm I'm looking through here. It's pretty cool to see these photos. There's actually you have a bunch of photos of this buck. Um, first question I would have is so you noticed getting pictures of him on two different tanks. You mentioned and you mentioned that he would in. Uh, I assume October, November, early December time frame, he would be on either or. Um, did you notice any sort of a pattern where, you know, for a week or so he'd be on this one and then, you know, several times he'd hit and then he would bump over and be on another one? And then, or, or was he just literally ping-ponging back and forth one day, one place? And, and with that, what kind of consistency did you see as far as how much was he watering? Um, he did actually have a, a pretty good pattern. He would hit each tank about four or five days in a row. Now, if he skipped a day or two, then, you know, we wouldn't count that. And then he'd come back and he'd hit it. So I should say it hit a, each tank four or five times. And then it seems like we wouldn't see him for a day or two. And he'd show up on the next tank for four or five days or four or five times and then flip flop back and forth. And that, and that, pretty consistent pattern all the way through November, even in all the way through December. And then in January, he started being a little bit more consistent on the one tank. Um, he would still hit the other one, but he would only hit it maybe one day or two days, and then he would be back on the other tank. And, and I was trying to figure that out. I spent a lot of time going through pictures of not just him, but the other deer that were using the tanks to see if maybe it was due to more does or um, something that was drawing him to that area for a longer period of time. And I really couldn't come up to any conclusions on that. So basically when we got down to hunt, I set blinds on both tanks and checked the cameras and he had hit um, one of those tanks that same day that I'd, I'd set up the blinds and checked the cameras. So I decided to go ahead and set that tank and wait a minute let me, let me I was clear that up okay. did, when you set your blind did he hit the tank that you had set or another one no he had hit the tank that i'd set okay so okay. i chose to to go ahead and spend my time at that tank the one he had watered at that day and i was able though to every two or three days either myself or someone else would be able to pull the cards off of the other tank. And he hasn't, he wasn't hitting that tank either. Um, so I, I was pretty sure that the next time we would see him would be at that tank that I was sitting. Uh, the funny thing was, and kind of made it difficult was we ended up on the third day, we ended up with a pretty good rainstorm and it filled a lot of the puddles and every morning walking to and from, uh, the tank I was sitting, you know, you'd get wet up to your knees from the grass. And I think it put down enough moisture that they didn't have to water. Um, we never had any pictures of this buck in the late afternoon, as in three, four, five o'clock. Uh, it was either in the morning time up to about noon, one o'clock, or it was in at nighttime in the dark. And 
for whatever reason, whether it be the, the running pattern or the moisture in the air, that buck came in at 5.30 in the evening, and I, I just was happening I'm to be sticking it out every day, you know, for 10 and a half, 11 hours a day, sitting in that tank waiting for that buck. Now, if he would have been showing up at the other tank, then it, it would have thrown a whole different wrench into the uh, the game plan there, and I would have had to make some decisions. But he never never showed up on any other tanks for seven days. So I, I stuck with it, and it paid off. That's awesome. Describe the country um, specifically that you're hunting between the two tanks and maybe you know how within a ranch country can change or what have you but specifically the country that this buck you felt like this buck was using between the two tanks describe that in as much detail as you can you bet i definitely can because i I spent a lot of time studying it because i was trying to find a way or a vantage point that i might be able to get up and observe the deer or even spot him and possibly make a stock on him or spot him and shoot him from where I, I had an opportunity to see him. And I just couldn't find that. And the reason being is they were the area in between the two tanks where this deer called home was low rolling ridges and the, the slopes of the ridges, the tops of the ridges were very thick with mesquite, Palo Verde, Ocotillo and, and cactus basically the bottoms of the little draws in between the rolling ridges were very thick with buffle grass, um, more of your taller mesquite, Palo Verde, um, organ pipe cactus, even some uh, getting down into the bottom of the draws, even some of the evergreen type trees. It's not really a cedar, but it's a, a cedar type tree in the bottoms of the draws. And it was just so thick that there was no place I could find that would give me a vantage point to actually study or look into any of that country. I tried different spots around. I tried going, you know, a mile and a half away and looking back into it and there just wasn't anywhere there. And I I believe that really had a lot to do with why that deer stayed in there, why he didn't really go out of that country. And in between the two tanks was only a mile and a half. And, I, I firmly believe he lived his basically his entire life in that, you know, mile and a half area. There were plenty of does. There was great feed, and obviously there was enough water in between the two. And it it, it was you know very thick, very low elevation desert type country. Yeah, it sounds like he was somewhat living in those jungle areas where, you know, as, as a glasser, it, you can just literally want to pull your hair out because you know you're basically stuck with trying to sit and wait them out and you know when when time is precious for everyone but you know when when you don't have you know a month to sit there and wait them out I'm sure as the days went by you're like come on dude just come please just come to um you know come come to the water so you got a storm that came in I'm so curious about coos deer and their behavior on the rest of the cameras on the ranch like what did you notice as far as well first question what when was the dates of this was this you know when in january was this so i think that sets kind of a tone of of my question and then how quickly did all of a sudden 
you notice that the deer, does, and bucks start coming back to water? Did it take 12 hours? Did it take 24 hours? Did it take, you know, two days? What was kind of the general rule of thumb? And the reason for my question is everybody always wants to know, you know, how long does it take them to get back into their pattern? Okay. To, to answer the first question there, we headed down around January 16th, if I remember correctly, right in that area of time. And we got down there, um, deer were pounding. I mean, they were hitting water regularly. Some, some bucks were hitting tanks two, three times a day. It was hot. It was pretty dry. Uh, we were excited. Everything looked good. We knew there was a possibility of a storm on the well, let's see, the first day, um, a lot of action on all the tanks. Um, the second day, one of our guys killed a 114-inch buck um, that we had never had on trail camera during daylight hours. He, he came in at like 1 o'clock, um, made a great shot on him, and great buck. The third day, killed a 121 that we had only had on camera three times previously in the whole year. Um, so... Everybody was excited. Everybody was great. The night, the third night we were down there, it rained and rained and rained and was still raining the next morning. That was the same. Now the funny thing is, that was the same storm that blew the roof off the house we were staying in. (laughs) Yeah, I actually listened to that podcast. I think I was like, I remember that storm (laughs) for sure. But the the funny thing was that next morning we still had a few deer hitting tanks and it had rained almost all night. So it kind of kept your, oh, your optimism up, you know, that it was going to happen. But then the, the fourth, fifth and sixth days was just nothing. I mean, we were lucky to see one deer, maybe two on any of the tanks uh, that we had cameras on or that we were sitting. Um, and it, it just slowed down for everybody. All of the cameras were just showing no activity. Um, so judging from that, with that rain, to me, it seemed like it took a good four days before the deer started coming back into their regular routine of hitting water on a, a consistent basis. And on the fifth day after the rain, um, we started seeing that. We started seeing it on our cameras. We started seeing it on the, the guys that were sitting in water still. Um, we started seeing the activity pick up around the water um, significantly compared to those four or five days after the rain. So some of the conclusions I was able to make with that, that as long as there's enough water in their feed and even some of the puddles that were, that were catching, they basically left the water alone. We still had your occasional deer come in, and I think it was more out of habit than being in the area than actually wanting that water to come into. Um, but by the fourth, fifth day after the storm is when everything really picked up again and they kind of got back to their normal routine. Yeah, one thing I would maybe observe from what you told me is, um, so the day after the rain, you noticed a, you know deer still coming to the tanks. You, I think sometimes, I, I want to get your take on this, I, you know, when you have a disturbance, when you have a storm come in that night uh, and the deer have been very patternable, I think it would be easy to think that those deer came back to the tank kind of as a gathering spot, kind of trying to figure out where their buddies are and you know what's going on. And then once they either regathered or regrouped or, you know, found, you know, where, where they were, then for, you know, four or five days, 
for specifically you say four days they didn't you know they were off getting plenty of water from you know the the what they were eating and the puddles and then all of a sudden you know i and i think that's one benefit well there's many benefits but one benefit to hunting a desert ranch you know further south like where you are they can become very patternable uh in situations where it does get dry and it gets consistent um where it throws a wrench in the plan is when you get any kind of inconsistency because then they they don't necessarily ever have to come to the water for days yeah for sure and and i would agree with you um the particular tank i was sitting during that time in the two or three days well actually the the first day after the rain and the second day after the rain i noticed a lot of deer moving by the tank so it's not like they they quit using that area at all but they would kind of not necessarily come over the berm and on into the tank i could just see them out in that the tall buffalo grass moving through the area and kind of hanging out in the general area and those were the only two days that i actually bumped deer going to and from the tank so like i'd park a quarter mile down the road and then I'd walk up through a draw and the two days after the rain I actually bumped deer moving to and from the tank and I believe you you nailed it right there that they're still kind of using that area as a social gathering and feeding area even though they're not necessarily coming into the water they're kind of getting their game plan together if you will or they're kind of checking on everything and see what's going on with the does or the other bucks. There's a buck on the insta on your Instagram. Again, it's Kramer Hunts with the C. Um, that's facing the camera. It's at night. His eye guards kind of tipped together. Looks like he's got, I think, four on his left side. He's got some sort of maybe a, a, a abnormal point or an extra of some sort on his left side. Um, is that a deer that ended up getting killed? He, he did not. That's actually a holdover buck for next year. Um, and he looks like he's we got call a that split brow tine. You, you call him lefty? He does. Yeah, we call him lefty because he does have four on that left side. Mm-hmm. Um, just a great buck and definitely one that was on the hit list. But he's a buck that we never could actually get a true pattern on. We knew he was hitting that tank, um, but we couldn't find any consistency to, to when he was hitting it. He would just show up, and then a week later, show up one more time, and then two days later, show up. And um, He's just, I guess, one of those bucks that's getting big because he's not necessarily patternable and uh, consistent. But we have high hopes for him next year because uh, he's, a, man, he's a, just a great buck, really pretty frame, got a little bit of everything going on there. He looks like he's got uh, some age in the photo, but he doesn't look extremely old to me. I mean, he looks like he's a deer that could still continue to blow up. Um, it, you know, it's I'm only looking at this head-on shot, but, I mean, he definitely looks mature. But to me, his face and, and, and his neck and, and the way his shoulders and everything, you know, I think he still has room to, you know, probably be even, you know, more mature next year. I agree with you 100% on it, and it was one that, you know, he was on our hit list because he's a big deer, but he was one that you kind of don't really want him to get killed yet because he could he could blow up into a giant next year because 
I, I feel the same opinion of you that he, he's a mature deer, but he's not in that older age class yet. He, yeah. he doesn't have the big Roman nose. He doesn't have the sway back or the, the real deep brisket yet. And I think he's still got another year or two where he could just really hit his prime and, and blow up into a giant. There's a picture here of a buck. It says the buck I named Flair moments after the shot noticed the uh, spot forming behind the shoulder. So you obviously you captured the shot. What what buck is that? Okay, so that's a buck that uh, my buddy Tim Maddox and I glassed up actually in November. And uh, we put him in the 112 low side, 116 high side category. Mm-hmm. He was hitting the same tank as Lefty. And we decided Tim was going to sit that tank. Um, and, you know, basically we said whichever buck comes in first, either Flair or Lefty, you know, is going to be in trouble. And it just so happened that we had never had any pictures of Flair in, in daylight hours. So I kind of thought that we would have a better opportunity of Tim killing Lefty. And on the second day, Flair showed up at 1 o'clock. Um, instantly, Tim knew what buck it was. It was about a 100, 120-yard shot. Um, he didn't waste any time. He got the gun up on him and, and just uh, made a great shot on the deer. And when he walked up to him, you know, there wasn't any ground shrinkage. No, it was, was exactly say, what we thought he was. Yeah, he look, he looks good. You know, um, I love those bucks that, that have big, long G3s. And I'm just looking at the one angle, and it's a little hard to tell, but... It looks like his twos are, you know, pushing that, you know, seven and a half, eight range. But his threes, the way they lay um, and kind of parallel his, his beam, I mean, his twos, or excuse me, his threes look like they're probably in that seven, seven, maybe more range. I mean, I see that buck being a 115 buck just from this angle all day long. I mean, real nice, solid frame, good eye guards. Um Beautiful yep. buck. Beautiful uh, you, buck. You nailed it. You nailed it. Right on the money right there. He's just, just shy of 115. He's 114 and, and high change. Um, you know, great character. And like you said, the G3s are a little longer than the twos. Um, he's got a little extra there coming off. Great eye guards. Just a, just a phenomenal buck that we were all tickled pink to uh, get on the ground and get our hands on for sure. Yeah, and I noticed kind of the... So, so I, I, I can see the background um, of this tank. So this is one of the tanks that Lefty was also hitting. And so I kind of get a feel for what you're sitting there as far as it looks like, at, at, you know, during monsoon times, the water backs way up and the tank's full. And then obviously uh, towards January, you know, the, the tanks diminish. So you've got lower water angle. But what that creates is, and, and I see big trees, a big canopy, it looks like, around the tank, or at least on the one side. Um, this is real typical of your kind of uh, low desert ranches, uh, you know, in, in what I call, you know, that Hermosillo-type area. Um, one of the challenges for archers is these tanks, you know, in the summer, they get filled up. It could be, you know, 100 yards across. But then as the water um, decreases and it gets, you know, they dry out, those tanks end up being, you know, sometimes puddles that are only, you know, 20, 30 yards across. And then they, you know, on dry years, they go completely dry. But I guess my point is um, I can see why you guys sit 
and and have a rifle with you because some of these shots because of the size of the tanks can be you know probably 100 150 yards across those areas yeah it, it, and that's exactly right like that buck flare the shot was 100 almost 120 yards now he comes in on the other side he's 20 yards from the blind um and as that water recedes you know we're, we're forced to put our blinds further and further away from the water uh, and i learned a pretty good lesson this year um you know i brushed in the front of my blind really good i walked down to the water to look back at it i was really happy with the setup and the first day i was in it i hear a buck spook that can't be more than four or five yards behind my blind and i'm like well he, he didn't smell me and the only thing I can think of is I didn't even bother brushing in the back of my blind thinking that, well, he's got to come over the berm, he's got to go through the canopy of, you know, the thick trees, and there's really no point in it. Well, I learned that the hard way this year that, uh, you know, I, I never did see what buck that was or what it could have been um, because he spooked on it. And so that's why we have to put our blinds back in that tree line, and that forces us then to possibly have a lot longer shot. And that's why we do have a rifle with us because a lot of the times we can't make that bow shot and a lot of the target deer we're after you might only get one opportunity you know in 10 days at that deer so we're willing to go ahead and pick up the gun and, and take the buck instead of letting him walk and hope for another opportunity for sure um have you noticed any sort of pattern uh specifically talking about now you're talking about brushing in your blind but um, can you give any advice as to entry and exit points for these bucks on some of these big repressos, some of these big water tanks? And I know guys listening that are hunting Arizona coos deer, um, you know, the, the, the question always is, you know, where are the deer going to come in? Obviously, you can look at tracks and try and see where they're coming in and out of. But is there any general rule of thumb that you've learned um, to to you know, to lean on the side of, you know, X, Y, Z, um, any, anything you can share there? Well, I, I learned a couple different things and unfortunately it, it makes it a little tougher when you're setting up and you're exactly right. The tracks tell you part of a story where they prefer to come in and actually water at. But what I noticed this year from, from both cameras as well as sitting is they tend to come in to one or two areas on a tanker from one or two directions and i noticed that it coincided with the with the wind that you know in the mornings if the thermals were coming one way that and the buck was coming in he tended to have his nose right in the wind coming in if it was in the afternoon the thermals had reversed that buck was coming in from the other side of the tank now I think, and, and I believe, judging from what I was able to observe sitting in the tanks and actually seeing it with my own eyes, is they might want come into one certain area and approach the tank, but then I noticed they would make a half circle or a full circle almost to get that wind in their favor, and then they would go ahead and, and basically pop out of the tree line and cross that open zone headed into the water. And the buck that I killed the day that I set up my blind, he had come from, say, the west, right up over the dam, through the tree line, exposed himself all the way to the water, and I had 15 pictures of him in five minutes. The day that I killed him, it was in the afternoon versus when he had come in in the morning, 
He came in on the completely opposite side of the tank, came in through the tree line, stood out there for probably four minutes before actually approaching the water. And I think they're doing that so they can check out the area. They're getting the wind right. They're using their senses to see what's around, what's been in, checking the area. I, I firmly believe for other bucks, other does. I was able to watch a couple bucks make scrapes right on the edge of the tree line before getting out towards the water. And I think they're using that as basically a communication source as well as making sure there's not something that's going to jump out and eat them when they approach the water. So I guess to summarize, yes and no. They have specific areas they like, but I think it depends upon which way the wind's moving and what time of day they're actually coming into water. Phil, one question I would ask you is, like, what kind of densities as far as, you know, obviously you had a rough probably four or five days there after it rained and you said, you know, nothing really came in and everyone was reporting pretty slow. But let's say in a normal consistent, you know, let's say we've had, you know, 10 days of consistent dry weather and they're kind of in their pattern, so to speak. Like, are you seeing, you know, 10 does a day and and five bucks coming in or are you i mean like what kind of action are you seeing and it, it makes me think of a question i asked you on a previous podcast if you had to specifically give a magic window magic hours when are those magic hours okay well let me let me answer the last question you asked first and Time and time again, especially on a year that is consistently dry, the magic hour at the tanks is from 9 o'clock till 1 o'clock. And, and I know that's more than an hour, but that's when we see the majority of action coming into the tanks. Um, most of the guys don't necessarily get up early and get in the blind before dark. Um, a lot of the guys are getting out at 1 o'clock, and if they haven't seen a deer between noon and 12.30, they'll go ahead and get out. Um, that's because that seems to be when we see the majority of the deer coming into water. And we did, we talked about that on a previous podcast there. And I think a lot of it has to do with where they're, they're bedding and then feeding and before they get to water. Um, but that seems to be the best time. As far as density wise, we're hunting low density ranches. Um, a good day on the majority of the tanks, we're talking four does, five does, and maybe one or two bucks. We have a couple tanks that are higher density tanks that they, you know, on a consistent basis, day in and day out, you're seeing 20, 30 deer where there's, you know, five, six, seven bucks coming in. They're definitely not some of the bigger bucks, but there's, there's some really good ones that are coming into that tank. I think a lot of it has to do with that specific tank. There's not water anywhere close to it. I mean, we're talking two, three miles between that tank and another water source. So I think if they're, that tank's drawing from a lot bigger area, and therefore that's why we're seeing more deer. Typically, you know, the average that we're seeing even on a consistent dry year is five to ten deer a day and two or three bucks um, coming in. And we're seeing that on the cameras as well. This year, uh, after I killed, um, Tim had already killed as well, and we got out. There's a couple areas on the ranch that we can gain some, some really good vantage points from. And we got up there and we glassed and we had probably the best year or best day we've ever had. And we saw over 50 deer and we saw over 10 bucks full, I mean, racked bucks. We're not counting spikes or two points 
And it, both of us looked at each other and said, wow, that was incredible. And it, it was one of those times where there were two or three hot does in the area and it looked like ping pong balls bouncing all over the place. And it was one of those days that, you know, as a coos deer hunter, you live for, but that's not the norm. And that's not what we typically see down on, you know, the type of ranches that we're hunting is the deer density is just not there. Now the quality seems to be, and, and we proved it this year, you know, with taking some great bucks. But as long as you you have the time and you can put in the effort that you can kill the bigger bucks without the higher density deer, it's a trade off. You know you're you're not seeing near the deer numbers, but that giant might walk out or the one that you specifically are hunting, you have a good opportunity to kill him. You talk about consistency. Um, in no, I, I mean I believe you run cameras all year round down there, but you you talk about you know, consistent patterns in November and early December, if you had, uh, let's just say that you had all the time in the world, let's say that, you know, you, 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 it was a perfect world and you had all the time in the world to hunt these deer, do you think you could be as effective in that November, early December time frame in, in, in sitting? Um, I mean, I know, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I, what's your answer to that question to that question is i do believe you could still be successful i think you would need more amount of time uh you know a longer time period because they're still going to hit it the the one thing you have going for you is down there you know in the hermosillo and, and a little bit further south area is it's hot and November, we're still, you know, well up into the 90s uh, a lot of times down there, according to our trail cameras and what we've seen. So I think they're they're relying on that water more of a daily basis than they are, say, later in the year when the temps cool down. So I do believe you could still get it done, especially focusing on a particular water hole. And it seems to be before the rut kicks in that those bucks are are choosing one specific water hole and they're making it a habit coming in and coming out the downfall of that is from what i've seen on our trail cameras is the majority of them are hitting it at night and that they're hitting it at, you know, during dark hours when the temperatures cooled down and i think that would be your biggest disadvantage of that time of year what type of cattle interference do you have um on these ranches i assume they're working cattle ranches do you do you notice anything between the amount of cattle coming in the amount of deer or does it seem to not have any sort of um, relevancy to each other as far as you know patterns and what whatnot um they are working cattle ranches and and i do believe it has a, a fairly significant effect on the deer what i've seen and we've been able to kind of observe this and we've actually proved our theory a, a time or two is that a lot of these tanks they're they're like you said they're great big repressos and they have a lot of high canopy type trees around the banks and the berms and the cattle will come in there and lay up and basically spend the majority of the day at that tank in the shade in the hottest part of the day and then you know as it starts to get a little later in the afternoon or earlier in the morning they basically feed off and from what we've seen on the on the pictures is the deer don't tend to necessarily come in and spend near as much time when those cattle are at the tanks what we've been able to do is we've talked to the ranchers 
And when we go down, typically after Thanksgiving, we'll have the, if, if the water's available, we'll have the ranchers actually move the cattle out of some of those pastures. And the majority of the tanks, we're able to, you know, close the gate and fence in where the cattle can't get in there. And the reason being is because we've noticed that we found that the deer don't necessarily like to come in when there's cattle laying around it all day. That's, you know, not saying they won't. We've seen them come in at the same time that cows are there and everything. But from what we've been able to observe, both with the trail cameras and while we've been there, and especially after we've got the ranchers to start moving some of the cattle out when we come in to hunt, is the deer will come in a lot more frequent and more regular and spend more time when the cattle aren't on the tank. What type of lion density are you seeing? Well, first question would be, roughly how big of a property are we talking and then the next question is what type of lion frequency are you seeing on the cameras and what does that lead you to believe as far as density of lions on this particular property we we have um this last year we had seven ranches um they all all bordering each other so they touch so we had close to 100 square miles and we had a lot of property uh, a lot of country tied up that being said, we did not have one water source anywhere on those seven ranches, with the exception of maybe one or two Bevendettos that we did not have a lion picture on. Um, some of the some of the tanks that seem to have the majority of the deer on too, the higher numbers of deer, we would have three, four, five lion pictures in a week's time and some of them in the middle of the day um, i was very surprised at how many lions this year we had during daylight hours versus typically we only get them at night um, but there's i would i wouldn't hesitate to say that there's a lot of lions um, as far as effect on the deer you know i used to be that one of those guys that said hey if there's a lion in the area it's going to going to muck out the deer herd and from what i've seen down there i think it plays a significant part on it but i don't think it's necessarily true that that's going to wipe out or decimate the deer i think there's a balance there um the other thing i've seen to notice is that there's a lot of javelina and it seems that we find more or as many you know lion killed javelina as we are deer and i think that you know it, they're animals of opportunity and, and they're not if they have the opportunity to kill a javelina versus expending the energy on killing a deer then they're going to do it the other thing that i i'm a firm believer of is down on these desert ranches they don't have the lions don't have those high vantage points just like we do or don't and i think it makes it a little tougher for them to kill a lot of these deer because they don't have the, the pinch points or the cliff to get on and have the deer come underneath them um, so i guess in a roundabout way that we do have a lot of lions and, and we had pictures of lions on every water source with the exception of maybe one or two on all seven ranches when you get pictures of lions do you typically get one lion or is it real common to have uh you know females with kittens you know t you know toms and, and and females together what like what are you seeing as a trend on on a lot of the the pictures we're getting We've been able to identify, okay, that's probably a mom with two, you know, kittens that are reaching adulthood. Um, you know, judging from the spots, the size of the bodies, size of the head, uh, very rarely have we gotten any large toms with any other, 
lion, you know, in the same picture. What we have noticed is on a couple of, of the tanks, um, we're getting probably two, three, and I think the most we've seen is four different lions that we're able to tell were actually different lions using that same water source, um, whether it be from judging from their size, their spots, their ears, their tail, whatever it might be, but distinguishing factors. And that really surprised me because I was old, more under the impression that if you had one or two lions in an area, that was kind of their home turf for whatever mileage, you know, they covered, and you might have a little overlap. I was surprised that we had that many different lions in one area. Now, it very well could have been that it was last year's, you know, kittens had grown up now and that they hadn't quite got kicked out on their own or whatever it might be. But I know for sure we had at least two uh, mature cats hitting the same water source. But the majority of the time, the larger toms are by themselves, and, and sometimes we'll get the females with, you know, last year's kittens that are still falling around. But uh, the big toms seems to be almost all by themselves. That's great stuff. Cool, cool to observe that. Uh, I want to take a second here and uh, thank the sponsors of this podcast, uh, GoHunt.com Insider, Lorenzo Sartini and his crew over there do a phenomenal job with their Insider and uh, been getting a lot of feedback from listeners who have joined the Insider, used the J. Scott promo code. They've gotten the $50 Kuyu gift card, uh, but they've been able to use the resource to uh, look into the draw odds for Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Nevada, uh, basically the western states. And I want to thank GoHunt.com for their sponsorship and want to encourage you guys to use the J. Scott promo code when signing up. All you have to do is um, click the blue Join Now button, use the J. Scott promo code, and GoHunt's going to send you a $50 Kuyu gift card. I also want to thank Kuyu. Kuyu, Jason Hairston, uh, March 1st, has stepped up to sponsor the podcast, and uh, we're going to have some uh, great things going on here with, with Kuyu that I'm going to be announcing later. And I actually just spent uh, a day out at Kuyu and got to tour the warehouse and uh, meet all the people in customer service and, and go through the whole um, headquarters there in Dixon, California. And uh, encourage you guys, Darn, I've been wearing Kuyu uh, since Jason started the company and we really like the product. Phil, I know uh, you, you like uh, Kuyu as well. I see you wearing it. And I uh, want to thank them for their sponsorship. Also, the Outdoorsman's, uh, the Optics Authority, there, uh, Cody Nelson and his group uh, there in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, if you use the J. Scott promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount there. Uh, and then Cheston Davis in Beaver, Utah with uh, Phonescope.com. Uh, use the J. Scott 16 promo code and get a 10% off discount at Phonescope. What Phonescope does is... Uh, they take any phone and they adapt any phone to any optic so that you can take photos and video right away. Um, these are custom molded uh, cases and a real slick device to get good digiscoping. So I want to thank my four sponsors here at the podcast. Uh, Phil, I, I'm looking here at your Instagram and... There's a buck that's got a split G2. His eye guard on that left side is kind of forked. He's got a little cheater on the inside of his beam. Um, looks like a mature, you know, he's got, you can see the Palo Verde around his burrs. 
Um, his beam on the left side's kind of bladed, uh, kind of palmated, just a really neat, you know, one of those bucks that regardless of score, whether he scored, you know, 110 or 140, uh, just a really neat deer with extras and kicker. And it looks like this deer's got some age on it. Um, what, what, uh, what's the status or what's the deal with this buck? Um, I can't really nail him down off of that description. Um, uh, it, it sounds, it says another, what do I hit say list, there? another hit list buck that we were able to ground check last month, nicknamed okay. Macho. Okay. Yeah. Macho is a, oh, a phenomenal buck. Uh, yeah. Actually one that, that we had been after in a roundabout sort of way for the last couple of years. Um, you, you're familiar with it that you get down there and there's, you know, you ask a, one of the Vateros, Hey, where's the biggest deer at? What have you seen? And they always kind of come up. Oh yeah, Muy Grande over here, you know, and yeah. you, you're always kind of sus- suspect on, well, I wonder if they really know what a big buck is or, but anyway, for the last couple of years, there had been a story that no matter which cowboy we had talked to, they had told us there's, you know, a 12 pointer over here and he's just a huge buck a macho buck you know? why is it always a 12 um, pointer because every ranch i go to in mexico <laughs> i i ask the same question in my spanglish i'm asking where is the number one buck the primero the 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 biggest buck on the whole ranch and every single time it's a 12 pointer how many points yeah <laughs> you know uh 12 i mean it's just like come on i you know but yeah, yeah go ahead so yeah, but that's the same thing. I mean, we've heard it too, and you're you're kind of like, okay, yeah, whatever. But the difference is this year is when Tim and I were down there setting our trail cameras and and going about kind of our routine on getting the cameras out and scouting. We actually come across a shed where the cowboys had told us this great buck lived, and we'd never seen it, never had a picture of it. And this shed, we measured out, and we're like, wow, if, if this thing matches the other side, we're looking at a 120-inch deer. And he had a couple extras and everything, and we're like, man, maybe, maybe there's some truth to this story. So <laughs> we just absolutely covered up the area in trail cameras. I mean, there's a couple tanks in there, and we had 14 cameras on one of them. We had 11 cameras on the other. We're like, if this is true, we're going to see this deer. And... Sure enough, we got pictures of this deer, and we're like, wow, that's a great buck. Um, one of our friends was able to actually go in there and kill him on the third day. He showed up. Uh, just a phenomenal deer. He's got big, heavy, bladed beams and extras and, you know, three points on one eye guard. and Just a phenomenal deer. So we kind of joked that the legend of Macho, you know, was over. We killed him, and, uh, and he ended up going 121 and I think like three eights or something, just a, just a phenomenal buck. But yeah, that's the one that we were so happy to get and get pictures of, or otherwise we probably wouldn't have even been fitting those tanks. So. Uh, it brings up a question that, yeah, it's a heck of a deer. Um, people should go check it out on your Instagram page. It's a really, really neat deer. It looks like it's just a mature deer. It, it, it's got a really neat look to it. Um, uh, it brings up a question of, how do you pick tanks um or or how what kind of advice could you give people that are you know hunting mexico for coos deer hunting arizona hunting new mexico like obviously you're running trail cameras and that gives you a lot of intel but like 
is your mindset to cover every single tank and just see what happens or are there certain things that you're looking for that 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 make you pick tanks that you want to put cameras on and and i guess take that a step further as you're answering for people out there that are listening that you know are hunting public land and they have lots of tanks to choose from like what what are things that you would look for Okay, we do, you know, when we get out there and are first setting up the cameras, um, we do try and cover up as, as many tanks as we can. That being said, we don't cover them throughout the year. We'll, there's a lot of water sources that we won't have a camera on because we just know or we've been able to determine that it's not worth our time going in and, and setting them up. And what we typically look for, and we always joke about it, we whether it's true or not, I, I'm not 100% sure, but we always say a big track always equals a big rack. A big rack doesn't always equal a big track. And we'll go in and we'll spend a lot of time, you know, looking for tracks and, and seeing the size of the track and basically the fr- trying to get a, an idea on the frequency of him using a specific water hole. The other thing we look at is the surrounding area. Is he got enough cover where he's going to be, you know, consistently in that area, or does he have to travel a long way to cover for his bedding area, for um, feed, all of those things kind of play into it. Some of these, you know, ranches, you'll go up down a long wash where there's very little vegetation, and then there's a huge water source that might have a, a track or two on it, but it's not one that you would consider setting because they're more likely not going to show up there. They're not going to cover all of that open country to go hit that water source. So we look at the surrounding area, but more importantly, we look at the tracks and we look at the amount of tracks and then the size of the tracks. And then we try and focus our trail cameras on those areas that want to produce the amount of tracks that we think is going to draw in a big buck. Um, because we're not just looking for big buck tracks. We're looking for the amount of those hitting the water as well, because we're focusing you know, our time during the rut because we're trying to make the most best use of our time. And I would do that, and I do it in Arizona as well on public land. I try and find the water sources that, one, have good amount of deer on it, two, might not be as pressured by people, and then three, have have all of the same things that I just discussed, the, the feed, um, you know, and the cover, and being able to approach an, an area without having to be exposed for long periods of time. And the more human pressure they have, I think that becomes a lot more important, especially, you know, on public land and like here in Arizona where there's kind of limited sources for these deer to use, but also narrowing down, you know, for hunters to use and and choose as well. So instead of going out there and trying to cover up every single source, um, go in and look for those things and, and try and make your... It brings me up to a question of human pressure and... Do you notice on these ranches in Mexico, um, well, let me ask, with human pressure in mind, are there times when you just hop in your side-by-side or your truck or whatever, and you just buzz around the ranch and you just pop out and you're just grabbing cards and putting new cards in? You're really not paying any attention to, like, you're just buzzing up to the tank, middle of the day or whatever, you're just popping, blowing and going. Do you notice that that messes them up at all? Like, or do you see pictures right away? Oh, a buck came in, you know, 30 minutes after I was there refreshing the cards. You know, do you notice that pressure scares them off or anything like that? 
down there, what we've seen is, and and typically when we go down after Thanksgiving, most of the time during the day, we're not even, you know, taking a tripod or a spot and scope or anything. We are just covering country, setting up cameras, um, trimming brush, and we'll be at a tank sometimes an hour and a half, two hours. Um, you know, doing away, doing some landscaping basically to eliminate false pictures and, and get better angles on our cameras. And when we're doing that type of activity around a tank, typically it, we won't see anything that first day or into that night is when you typically they first start coming back into the tank. So I think even though they're not necessarily associating us with a, a lot of danger, it, we're messing up their routine and they can smell us. They can hear us. They know we're there. Now it changes a little bit as we get more into the actual hunt, um, you know, later in December, January, we do exactly what you just said. We'll jump in the side by side. We'll say, okay, I'm going to hit these five tanks. You jump in your truck, you go hit those four tanks, and we're just in and out, pulling cards, pulling cards, pulling cards. And when we do that, we'll have a picture of deer sometimes within 30 minutes after we've pulled that card. So I think it depends on the amount of time you spend at that particular area and how much disruption it actually does to their normal routine. Um, And also by then, you know, the cameras have been up for three, four months, and I think they're kind of used to them. Um, we don't leave them out year round. We, we typically put them up in November and we pull them into January, February, somewhere in there. Um, so I, I think going back to your original question, the pressure wise, if you're in and out, we, we try and take the same route in and out as well. It's not disrupting their, their routine. Um, they kind of, they might catch a whiff of you, but they're not going to associate it with changing their pattern. When we go in and we spend an hour, two hours setting things up, we disrupt their routine, and typically it takes a day for them to get back into it. You talk about false photos, and I want to ask you about camera setup. Give me some tips and things you've learned on how to um, you know, not get as many false photos and tips you've learned as to camera direction and, and what you found you know, as far as placement, you know, angle, what have you, what, what have you learned? Um, you want to try and keep it as, as north and south as possible. That eliminates your, your morning and evening sun. When you're trying to catch specific areas, a lot of times that's impossible to do. So when you have those areas that you know your camera's pointed into, a, say, a rising sun or a setting sun, you have to do your best to eliminate the background noise is what I call it, your, your tree limbs that not necessarily – your limbs that are, you know, big mature trees, but your little limbs that have foliage on them, you know, a, a lot of the greenery, I'll, I'll take uh, almost like a rake and try and knock down the majority of the grass in front of the camera. And speaking of, of that, that brings me to another point that we've learned is if you have the ability, try and get that camera at the deer's eye level. If you get that up and, and facing down, it kind of gives you a different perspective on their, their antlers um, you also are covering a less, you have a less area of detection, um, and you get better pictures if they're actually at eye level. Now, your eye level or, or the deer eye no, level? The deer's eye level. So typically it's, it's our chest height okay. is where we like to have the camera. Um, and that puts it about the deer's eye level when they're coming or going, you know, on public land, 
what I do is typically I'll get them up higher and aim them down so the camera is less visible. But down in Mexico, we're not worried about that. So we're going strictly off of our best opportunity to catch a deer with as minimal amount of false pictures as possible. Uh, along those lines, what we found too is that if you have an approach, if you have a camera that's basically pointed directly at where the deer will come or go in a straight line, that's when we miss the majority of the animals. What we like to do is try and have that them walk at an angle past the camera, and we will pick it up more times than not, whereas if that animal has to walk straight to the camera or straight away from it, we'll actually not get a picture of it. And that kind of blew me away. I've been sitting in tanks before, and I think, oh, man, I'm going to get a great picture of that deer. And I'll go pull that card that night, and I won't have a picture of the deer. Whereas if the deer crossed in front of it at an angle, then I'll have two or three pictures of the deer. So that, that was a pretty good learning you know, curve for us on how to place the camera, where to place it to get the best shot on what we're actually trying to achieve. Do you feel a lot like of times it, on these big... Go, go ahead, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Um, do you feel oh, like no. do you feel like a, a perfect ninety degree in, in essence if your camera is facing, uh, let's say it's facing north and you're on a trail, it, it, when you're talking about an angle, you'd rather have quartering angles rather than just perfectly perpendicular where they might just boom walk through the path, right? Don't you want to have where they're going to hit that laser beam? They're gonna they're gonna be at a 45 so to speak either coming or going so there's more surface area or is it am, am i wrong that you would rather have it be a perfect 90 where they just walk by what we try and do is is 45 angles 45 degree angles seem to work best the the 90 degree angle is good and you're going to get you know basically the full silhouette of that animal going by the problem with that is a lot of times we'll have them set on you know five picture bursts because you want as many different angles in that short amount of time that he's in front of your camera. So where we found is that if you can get it at a 45, you're reducing the risk of missing that animal where it's coming straight in or straight away, but you're also increasing basically the span that you have of that animal in front of your camera. So if we can, we like to put them at 45 degree angles. And what I was going to say just a little bit ago is we like to drive a fence post in, basically, and it really works good on these big repressos where the water is, you know, shrank or dried up to the point where they're not along the tree line anymore. We'll drive a fence post in probably 10 yards back from the water, and then we'll actually put two cameras on that fence post. So there won't be one shooting straight at the water, but it'll be shooting one on each edge of the water and that gives us our 45 degree angle where we get the best coverage for that particular area yeah it makes total sense and do you find that um you are putting way more cameras on fence posts than um and you're talking metal fence posts than say on trees and such and does that help with you know them waving around and branches getting in the way and all of that and did the deer pay any attention to that fence post uh, we we would prefer to put them on fence posts if we could. Um, for the reasons you just said, you typically don't have to trim near a big area and worry about the false pictures. And the other thing, and they are metal fence posts, what we will usually do is those, we'll actually take a, a limb from a tree and actually wire that to the post 
and then wire the cameras to that limb and the post. And what that does, it gives you a better mounting area for your camera. Um, as far as the deer are concerned, they don't pay hardly any attention to the cameras. Um, typically, when they first show up, you know, you might get a deer or two looking at them. But other than that, it, it doesn't seem to bother them at all. Even at night, you know, um, I've heard a lot of different things with flashes and this and that. And I think the deer are aware of them, but I've never had any of them spook over them. And I think they get used to it, and it provides us with a lot better camera setup on putting them on the posts. Speaking of cameras, um, what kind of cameras do you use and why? You know, what have you found to be the best and, you know, what are you using? We, especially this year, we did a lot of experimenting with different cameras. Um, but by far, what we've gone back to that is our best consistency, fewest false pictures, longest battery life, and best trigger speed is the Brownings. Um, the fives, the HTC fives, BTC fives, um, they're a very good value for your money. You know, if you pay attention and watch online, you can get them for around a hundred bucks a camera. They run off of six double A's. Um, they take up to like a 32 gigabyte card and by far they've been our most consistent performer out of all of them. Covert's a great camera. What we found with the coverts though is no matter what setting you have them on, they're very, very sensitive. So what we'll typically do on our coverts is we'll take tape and basically tape over the majority of your whole sensor window and leave a very small area. Um, and without having to do that, that's why we just keep going back to the Brownings. Uh, they're, they're a great camera, and that's one we prefer. They actually take really good video, too. Um, and we've been playing around with that where we'll have one camera set on video mode, the other camera set on stills. And now with the technology, actually a lot of the cameras are coming out where you can do a hybrid mode where it'll take a still and then activate the video all at the same time. So they're a lot of fun. Um, you know, they're great to use. They can be really frustrating when you get there and you're just so excited to see a picture and the camera didn't work or you forgot to turn it on. But that happens. You know, we ran 83 cameras last year. So um, there's, there's going to be some that just aren't quite working. How many cameras do you own personally? I think I'm up to around 28 now, um, pushing 30. Um, you know, I'm constantly upgrading, and you'll get one that, that might have a glitch in it, so you kind of shove it out of your, your arsenal. Cull um, it out of the herd. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it's been upgraded to a different model, but, yeah. Um, I think I'm pushing 30 right now on my cameras that nice. um, I own personally, and then I think Tim's probably got, 60 or 70 and then a couple of our other guys pitch in two or three you know as we need them so. do you um do, or, uh is tim still using those um 40 super wide angle doctors that i sold him uh you know i haven't seen them <laughs> because on our ranch we really don't have the area to be busting them out but um i, I wouldn't be surprised if he is i just haven't seen them gotcha so obviously you're excited for next year and um, you've learned a lot, and, and um, it's obvious you have a passion for it. And there's a lot to it. It sounds like it's just a, a you know constantly learning, and, and that's one of the things that I like about Coos Deer is it seems like you're always constantly tinkering and trying to learn, and they're just an incredible animal. Would you agree? 
I would agree a hundred percent. Um, especially, you know, that no matter what, every time you think you've got them figured out, then they throw something different at you and you're like, wow, never seen that one before. And you just try and file it in your memory bank and, and use that as you're, you know, in your arsenal for the next time that you're out there in the field. No matter what, um, whether you kill one or you're just taking pictures of them, they're, they're such a neat animal. They're a beautiful creature. Uh, I love their configurations of their antlers, and, and they're great to eat, too. Um, super excited for next year. You know, we, we've got a lot of bucks that, that were on our hit list this year that we didn't kill, and that's fairly unusual. I mean, normally you will have our hit list and maybe one or two show up that we weren't expecting, but... This year we killed some bucks, you know, on the fringes that we we were targeting, and it worked out. But we also didn't kill, you know, all of our hit list bucks, and that that makes it really exciting for next year. Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. Um, you are a turkey nut as well, and um, I know your daughter had gotten her Osceola turkey, and then. Uh, uh, you also got a Gould's tag and you signed over your Gould's tag to her um, and she got her Gould's and um, uh, you went down this spring and went to Florida and got your Osceola and I believe you're both scheduled to go uh, get your Easterns um, for for your, uh, I guess it would be her Royal Slam and you still need a Gould's, but um, tell me about this Osceola hunt. Uh, you're right. I, I'm a turkey nut as well. Uh, I love, absolutely love spring turkey hunting. Um, you're right again, too. I drew a Gould's tag, signed it over to my daughter. She killed a beautiful bird. Uh, I took her to Florida, actually, last year on the Florida youth hunt for the South Zone and um, went to a place called Swamp Gobbler Outfitters that ran by Ben and Charlie. Um, great guys, down-to-earth people. Just We had an absolute blast. I mean, a lot of fun. They had never guided a youth hunter let alone a girl um, so they were you know a little nervous going into it needless to say we hit it off um, right off the bat and she took one so i you know i needed my osceola so i went ahead and booked a hunt for this year i just got back uh, this last week um, had a phenomenal trip i mean i, I don't want to use you know nickel words but it was an epic hunt uh, we got there i already kind of knew the guys you know we had stayed in touch throughout the year um, so I knew exactly what was going on. No doubt in my mind, we'd be on birds and we got set up next morning. Just, they called them in off the roost. I mean, textbook, everything worked perfect. Um, I just, I wasn't comfortable with the shot. So I let the bird walk off. Um, we started running and running, called in another bird. Um, I was able to take him just a great, great off field. I ended up with 11 inch beard, um, you know, big old long spurs on them which they're known for um a phenomenal hunt and then i was able since i filled out early i was able to stay there and, you know help with the other hunter till he took his bird and then help around the ranch and, and got to do some scouting with the guys and osceolas for those who haven't hunted them um they kind of have a short fast gobble uh, they're not quite as vocal as some of our merriams and, and our goulds um, but they're, they're a smaller bird. They have black wings and the country they live in, you know, in the, in the Everglades with big palmettos and, and pine trees. It's, it's just a different experience than what we get out in the West and, and a lot of fun. And I, I recommend anyone that, that needs to get their Osceola to, 
to do it because it, it's a blast, um, different experience. But yet at the same time, you're still chasing that, that goblin turkey and, and trying to bring him into you and roost him. And the, and the whole setup that we go through out here, it's just in a different environment. And, uh, really kicked off to a great start to the season. Um, you're right again. My daughter and I are, are booked to go to Missouri. Um, we're actually going to hunt the last three days of the Missouri season um, due to her softball schedule. So I hope that the, the birds will still be working pretty good and we'll be able to get it done. But um, in between now and then, I, I have a uh, I'm going to Texas actually this next week to so, try and kill a Rio with my bow. And, so am I. Uh, Oh, are you? Yeah, you yeah I didn't know you were going to Texas. Yeah, I'm going. Uh, we've got the uh, Desert Christian Archers NWTF um, turkey banquet on Tuesday night, and then that following that that morning, I'm flying to uh, San Antonio to uh, uh, go and take my bow and try and shoot uh, Rio Grande's uh, with my bow. So that's cool. You're doing it too. I am. Yeah, actually, I'm leaving on Thursday. Um, where Through you? my work, I actually have a couple rigs working out in Texas. Um, they're in Monahans, Texas right now, so I'll go see them on Thursday and then head down to Sonora, Texas, actually, off the 10 um, there on Friday and spend the weekend there. Um, there Last year, I took my daughter out there, and she killed her Rio, so I'm familiar with the area. Uh, I kind of know the setup a little bit, so I have high hopes that Hopefully the birds are working and I'll be able to pull one in. Um, you know, over there you're, they they're pretty lenient and on tag wise, so I think they they typically give four tags in most counties. Um, where I'm hunting, I have an arrangement with the ranch owner that I can take two birds. So I'm excited. Uh, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it for sure. Yeah, Texas is is uh, definitely a target rich environment, and I love the four tags and you know it's i'm looking forward to the trip as well so that's awesome um so you're you're gonna be uh shooting some turkeys this year you've already shot your osceola and they're just beautiful all the black on those birds are are really neat i'm i'm looking forward to someday getting my osceola um but yeah it's 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 uh that time of year i love the spring i I love turkey hunting and um i know you do too uh i I want to ask you a couple quick questions. I noticed your photo of your Osceola uh, and your photo of your coos deer down in Mexico. You're wearing Kuyu. And I wanted to ask you what uh, is kind of your general go-to setup, uh, you know, as far as Kuyu gear on the deer hunt. And then uh, the same question with uh, the spring turkey hunt you know, or the Osceola hunt that you just did, what, what pants, what shirt, like, what is your go-to on that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I started wearing Kuyu a few years ago. Um, it's just so comfortable as you know, and such a good high high quality product that, um, you know, now I'm a firm believer in it and and a diehard on the deer. Um, you know, basically I'm wearing a, a Teton or even an attack pant. Um, but the difference is that I'm layering them and typically underneath I'll have the Merino wool, their zip offs. Um, and same on the top, I might have the Merino wool or even a pelt on 140 or 200 or whatever it might be and just layer them up. And then that way, as the day progresses or you're a little bit more active, just start stripping it off. 
the one thing that I'll do on the deer hunts is I, I always have the super down with me. Um, so that way, if I'm not moving and it's cold, that I can throw that on and, and shoot, I never get cold. Um, and then on the turkey, uh, I'm basically wearing the same thing. Um, the Teton pant and the Teton shirts, um, they're fairly lightweight. They're breathable. And especially down like in, in Florida where I was, everything's super green. Um, and I found that that the verde pattern seems to really hide hide yourself, blend in well. Now, when I go some some of the different areas, I'll wear the bias pattern, which is a little bit lighter, a little bit bigger pattern that I think helps break up your outline. Um, but the the Teton, the Tiburon, and the Tax are kind of the three lines that I wear. Um, and I basically wear the same thing, just with different amount of layers underneath. And that way, you know, I'm able to, to strip them down as I get heated up or as the evening gets cooler, I can, I can layer back up. With their, when they came out with their zip-offs, um, their bottoms and everything, that just such a huge advantage <laughs> because you don't have to take off your boots. I mean, yeah. you can be warm in the, in the morning, and as soon as you start, you know, the temperature starts climbing, just zip those things off, throw them in your pack, and away you go. And uh, that's just a huge advantage to me, um, you know, being mobile, being light, not having to bulk up with a lot of extra gear. Yeah, for sure. Um, I really like those Tiburon pants for turkey hunting um, just because the way the air flows through them and, you know, for warmer temps, um, it's, it's great, but it still gives you coverage, you know, as far as, um, you know, having a camo pattern. Um, some of the Goulds turkey hunts I do down in, in Mexico, you know, it starts getting warm and that's where that Tiburon, you know, really comes in. And like your deer hunts, um, even in January, you can be cold in the morning, but you know, it, like you said, it could be 85 degrees, uh, during the day where you hunt and, you know, that Tiburon is just so nice cause it lets the air pass through. But, uh, yeah, that's cool. I saw you wearing it. And so I was going to get your take on that. And, um, well, man, it's been awesome having you on here and I'm excited to, uh, uh, see how you guys do. I'm excited to see how you do with your archery, uh, Rio Grande hunt in Texas, and then be watching for you and your daughter and, uh, give her a congratulations when she gets her Eastern and completes a Royal slam. Uh, that's, that's fantastic. And I'm, I'm proud of you for getting her out there. And, uh, I don't, I, I don't know her, um, but it looks like she really enjoys it and likes spending time, uh, with you and spending time out there hunting and, and, uh, hats off to you for, you know, getting her involved. And, and I think that's so important. And, um, yeah, just a great picking your brain and talking to a fellow coos nut uh, about your experiences down there and um, wish you the best of success next year. I'm sure I'll be talking to you before then, but uh, um, congrats on you guys' success that you had. Shot some great bucks and um, encourage anyone to definitely check out uh, Phil's Instagram page, Kramer Hunts, that's with a C, uh, Kramer with a C. And um, uh, Phil, any any parting words or any last final comments uh not really jay just thank you you know it's always a pleasure to talk to a, a gentleman like yourself who loves outdoors and in it for all the right reasons and, um as far as getting my daughter out there she's been probably one of my best friends and hunting partners in the world uh, i cherish every moment that we're able to spend and I recommend anyone, you know, that, that can take a kid hunting because it, it's so rewarding and so much fun that it makes it 
all all so worthwhile and man i i hope you have the best of luck and over there in texas and able to get a reel or two with your bow and i look forward to it and i thank you for putting on the podcast they're, they're really enjoyable all right buddy sounds good well god bless take care okay thanks yeah you too